we have a great privilege today. Uh, we, we get to dig into God's Word every, every week, but today we get to dig in the, into the passage with the most famous Bible verse in the world in it. John 3.16, uh, it probably is memorised by most of you. You probably just know it off by heart. Uh, and, and it's a worthy verse to be memorised because it's a great summary of the greatest hope that we will ever hear in this world, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That, that is the best news ever, isn't it? This news will never get old. If you're a Christian, it should never get old because these words are the good news. They are the gospel. And today we get to look at John 3.16 in its context. Uh, and we need to get straight into it because there's a lot to, to go through here. Um, as we go through the, the passage, <clears throat> I've got three points for us today. The first is the work of the Spirit or the Spirit's work. Second, the look of faith. And then lastly, the relentless love of Jesus. So if you're following along in your Bibles, the Spirit's work, the look of faith, and the relentless love of Jesus. We, we start in chapter 3, verse 1 meeting a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. We're told he's a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is a respected guy. Uh, he's got good standing in his community. He's, he's a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he has some serious street cred. Uh, his qualifications are outstanding. Uh, so Nicodemus is one of the 70 people who made up what was known as the Sanhedrin. And this group set the laws for the Jews. They, they gave oversight uh, the theological and political life of the Jews. If you skip down to verse 10 of our text, Jesus says that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, meaning that his voice was one of the biggest voices for people, for Jews to listen to. Uh, it is possible that his voice was the, the leading theological voice in Israel. That he was the one that people would look to and listen to. So he's a pretty important guy. <clears throat> We know from other parts of John's Gospel that Nicodemus likely became a follower of Jesus uh, toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he seemed to be the exception of the Pharisees. Uh, when Jesus came into contact with Pharisees, he usually had some pretty stern words to say, but not so for Nicodemus. There have been many comments made about how genuine Nicodemus is in seeking out Jesus. Uh, I believe he was pretty genuine. I think he, his, his interaction with Jesus was pretty genuine. I think he was really genuinely seeking God. Uh, and verse 2 says Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. That's going to be really important because in, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, you actually have, of John, you have nighttime instance with Jesus and someone, interaction. And in chapter 4, you have a daytime instance with Jesus and someone, and they're very different. So park that in your minds. Uh, when J John talks about the night in his gospel... It's, it's used two ways. It can either mean that if someone was in the night that this was metaphorical, so that they were in spiritual darkness, or it could mean nighttime. Um, I think it means both in this instance. Both ways of the use of the word night come to the same conclusion. You can't see, and Nicodemus can't see. He certainly cannot see. He was spiritually in the dark, and he was also in the dark. So Nicodemus and Jesus begin to have a discussion. Uh, Nicodemus starts it off. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know 
that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So a few things to notice from that verse. Firstly, uh, Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi. So he comes using a term of respect for Jesus. But also notice uh, what he says immediately after. Um, This is going to be important later. He, He says, Rabbi, we know. We know. Uh, meaning that Nicodemus is meeting with Jesus, genuinely seeking God, but he's also come on behalf of others. We know. So he's coming on behalf of others to, to check out Jesus. And, and interestingly, Nicodemus claims to know and claims to see that he, that he knows what's going on. He says, we know you're a teacher from God. We, we've seen the signs you're doing, and no one can do that unless God is with him. And from the glimpse of the conversation we, we get from Jesus and Nicodemus, Nicodemus does begin in verse 2 with a statement, right? That's what I just read out, we, we know. Uh, but his statement, when you read it between the lines, really has a question. And his question is essentially saying is, Jesus, we know you're a teacher, but are you more than that? That's really what his question is behind the statement. Are you more than a teacher? Jesus responds in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So just a reminder, when you hear that word, uh, truly, truly, when you you see those words repeated, uh, it's like John is, when Jesus is saying, listen, listen up. Uh, It's like an exclamation point. If you think about it like that, there's no exclamation point in Greek. This was the way that they would use an exclamation point. They would just repeat themselves. So when you hear, when you see words, holy, 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 the reason is because it's like exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Um, for, for us today, it's kind of like when your parents used to use your whole name. You know, you knew you were in trouble when your whole name was used. You had to listen. <laughs> so Jesus is, is wanting you to pay attention. Pay attention to what he has to say. And what does he say? Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. I wonder how familiar this language of being born again feels to you. It's very Christian, isn't it? It's very Christian lingo to say, born again, I've been born again. It's a phrase we use in church. It's a phrase we use in conversations. We know what it means. And it's a phrase that sometimes we use with our friends and they might give us blank stares because they don't know what that means. And I reckon that's the kind of blank stare that Nicodemus would have given Jesus. What, what do you mean, being born again? But Jesus says that to see the kingdom of God, we need new birth, a new beginning. And of course, the birth that Jesus is talking about is spiritual. I wonder if you've thought much about this. Birthdays are kind of weird, aren't they? Has anyone had a birthday this week? anyone had a birthday this week? Is anyone having a birthday next week? Is anyone going to game enough to put their hand up? <laughs> no? No birthdays? All right. Well, we'll use Josh then. Good. Um, birthdays are a bit weird because when someone has a birthday, we thank, we congratulate them. Like, isn't that weird? Like, we, we kind of get all excited. We clap. We sing happy birthday. Don't hear me wrong. We should celebrate birthdays, but it's weird, right? Like we celebrate what we've all been through. Like we've all been born. (laughs) Um, And we don't actually do anything to contribute to being born. 
we just are born. Um, but when it's our birthday, we have this day dedicated to us. Some people even have a birthday month. And everyone feels like we have to be nice to the birthday person because they did nothing. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? If anything, we should probably celebrate the mums <laughs> on birthdays. Um, give them presents. Yeah, um, I, th- I think birthdays are weird. But, but Jesus says we need another birth, not just a physical birth. And being born, you know, physically has nothing to do with us. Physical birth has nothing to do with us. We didn't do any of the work. We didn't just work hard enough to get born. Birth and life is a complete gift for us. So if physical life is a gift that comes from outside of us, how much more is spiritual life a gift that comes from outside of us? If natural life happens completely external to to anything that we can do, then how much more is spiritual life completely external from us? Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. This is a completely spiritual birth. This is something that is outside of Nicodemus' control, and that's hard. It's hard for all of us. It's the one thing I wish I could control with my kids' lives. I wish that they would become Christians, but I have no say in them being born again. It, it comes from outside of us. What a great reminder to us that life with God is not just works. It's not just doing better. It's not just trying harder. It's not just trying to fix yourself uh, you know, do, doing better in your own strength and your own ability. It, it's not just making good choices. That you are born again, that you are given spiritual birth and become a Christian is a miracle from outside of you. It is completely a miracle of life. And only God can give it, no matter who you are, no matter how good you are. And so Nicodemus if there was anyone who would deserve it, it would be him. He was, he was the model Pharisee, the, the teacher of Israel. He was the best example, and it wasn't enough. He's a do-gooder. He's a man of righteousness. He's devoted. He's well-respected. He's committed. He's a good guy. By all the checks and balances, you would give salvation to him. It's not enough. Even Nicodemus has to be born, born again. This would have been hard, I think, for Nicodemus to understand. And in verse 4, he, of course, gives away that he doesn't understand. How can someone be born when they're old? Are we supposed to go into the womb a second time? I, I don't really understand how this works, Jesus. And Jesus then continues in verse 5. He says, truly, truly. So again, listen up. Unless one is born of water and spirit. He can't enter the kingdom of God. Verse 5, I've got to say, has troubled a lot of commentators. Uh, It's troubled a lot of Christians alike for centuries because when you read it, it is hard to make sense of what Jesus is saying. What, What is Jesus saying when he says that we have to be born of water and spirit? And to get the answer to this, we need to think about the context. Um, Who is Jesus saying this to? It's Nicodemus, right? the teacher of Israel, the highest-ranking Old Testament rabbi, the one who, after this conversation, says to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand what I'm saying? After this conversation, he says that. 
Essentially, I think this is a marker, a clue for us to understand what Jesus is talking about. I think he, the clue is that being born of water and spirit must be found in the Old Testament. Because Nicodemus doesn't get it. And Jesus says to him, you should get it because you're a teacher of Israel. And when you, when you realise this, um, you, f- you figure out that Jesus is alluding to one of the prophets, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 Verses 25 to 27, the context for this passage uh, is that God tells Israel what, what Israel's greatest need is. And, uh, and this is what it says. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So Israel's greatest need is that they need an outpouring of the spirit. They need an outpouring of the spirit that pours onto them like water. The outpouring of the spirit will purify them, will cleanse them, will give them a new heart. This is only something that God can do. So Jesus is essentially saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born of water and spirit. The greatest need you have is for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on you like water. And that's something that only I can do. You need to be washed clean. You need to be made alive. And if you're not, then you can't enter the kingdom of God. Who is the active agent here? Who is the active agent in making someone born again? Who is the active agent in making someone born of water and spirit? Who is it that's doing the work? It's God. Nicodemus needs a miracle that only God can give. Because being born again is all God and none of us. That we are saved is completely in the Father's hands. That our our heart abounds with joy because of what God does to make us alive is in God's hands. Because being born again is a new and lasting relationship with God and, and it has nothing to do with us. As, as born again, uh, sorry, as being, before being born again, we were God's enemies. But being born again means we're made alive. We are no longer running from God as enemy, but we are running to him as father. In the act of being born again, our relationship is no longer enemies, but our relationship is redefined as sons and daughters. Nothing we ever used to chase after in in our sin will ever do. It will never suffice. Finding life and meaning in food or friends or sex or companionship, nothing will satisfy apart from being born again and being united to God. And when we fall into sin, if you're a believer, when you fall into sin, because we've been born again, we hate it. We hate that we fall into sin. We don't want that. We don't want this in life and we repent, we turn back to God and repentance and faith because we're born again. That's what being born again is. It's more and more and more of Jesus and less and less and less of you. More of Jesus than you ever thought was possible. So real discipleship, real heart change with Jesus and, and living life with him is more than just Good works. It's more than morality. It's more than going through the motions. It's more than practice, even. And it's more than strategy. Real discipleship is 
allowing God to reorder your, the loves of your heart. To order the loves of your heart to loving Jesus first, because he's the most important thing. And to, to love the big things a big amount, to love the little things a little amount, and to love the medium things a medium amount. That's what it is to be born again. Born of water and spirit. Well, Jesus continues. We've only gone in five verses. Whew, he continues. In verses 6 and 7, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Here, I think Jesus is just pointing out the obvious. Like generates like. People give birth to people. That's what it means by flesh gives birth to flesh. But only the Spirit can give birth to Spirit. Only God can put the Spirit in you. Only the Spirit gives birth in our hearts to make us born again. Uh, in Jesus' day, that, that wind comment, in Jesus' day, the wind couldn't be controlled. We can control it now in a, to a certain degree, but not back then. But either way, we can see the effects of the wind in many ways, can't we? We hear the sound of wind. We see long grass move in directions. That's one of the coolest things, I think, when you see grass moving. Uh, we, we see clouds move in the sky. We feel houses move when there's really rough winds. You feel your house shake. And so it is with God's spirit inside of us. We, we can't control him, but we can see how the spirit changes us. That's what Jesus is getting at. Being a follower of Jesus, being born again, it really is a miracle. Isn't it? And so, if God saves and the Spirit makes me alive, how do we respond? How do we actually get born again? That brings us to the second point, the look of faith. So I'm going to read verses 9 to 13. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Can't blame Nicodemus for that, can you? I, how, can, how can these things be? It's pretty confusing. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Essentially, Nicodemus is asking, how is it possible to be born again? And surprisingly, Jesus rebukes him. You're the teacher of Israel, he says, and you don't get this. You're the one that people are looking to, to find answers to life and hope and death, and you don't know? Haven't you read the Old Testament and figured this out yet, Nicodemus? And interestingly, when Jesus responds back in verse 11, he takes a small dig at Nicodemus. Just have a look at this little dig. Think back to verse 2 when Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know. So he's coming on behalf of people. In verse 11, Jesus says, we speak of what we know and you don't believe us. Jesus is talking about himself and the Father. So, so Nicodemus says, I've come on behalf of others. And Jesus says, well, I'm speaking on behalf of myself and God. So just a little dig there. 
In verse 13, uh, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which of course is his favourite phrase for himself, God becoming man. But then verses 14 and 15, um, Jesus uses this illustration to explain uh, and prophesy about what he's here on earth to do. So we're going to look at that. Uh, Have a look at verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It is no surprise, it should be no surprise to us that Jesus prophesies here. He's been doing it already in the book of John. So in John chapter 2, he says, my hour has not yet come. Uh, in, in the same chapter, he says, destroy the temple and I'll raise it in three days, speaking of his body. But here in verses 14 and 15, he prophesies uh, using an example from the Old Testament, from an obscure little passage in Numbers 21. The brief context for what's happening around Numbers 21, we really need to know. Israel has been saved out of slavery um, from from Egypt, and they are on their way to the Promised Land. This should have been a two-week journey, but Israel are really good at getting lost, and so it takes them 40 years. Um, They forget so easily. This is the reason why it takes them 40 years. They, They forget so easily about how good God is, about how God has provided from them and taken them out of slavery And as they journey, you can actually see that they stop trusting God along the way. They set out to Edom, and they become impatient with God, even just going to Edom. Uh, And this leads to idolatry. They create other idols to try and capture meaning and significance in life and something else to worship other than God. And the reference in verses 14 to 15 of John 3 comes from this Numbers 21 passage, verses 6 to 9, and it is a weird story. Um, Because after Israel speaks out against God, this is what happens. God sends fiery serpents, so snakes, uh, among Israel. The word fiery doesn't mean they were on fire or angry. Just to clarify, it means they were poisonous. Um, And there's lots of snakes, snakes on the paths, snakes in the areas that people congregate in, snakes in the tents, snakes everywhere. Forget snakes on a plane. That movie was just based off Numbers 21, right? The snakes everywhere here. And the snakes cause Israel to repent, to own their sin. They they actually come to Moses and they say, well, Moses, we sinned. We spoke against the Lord. We spoke against you. So Moses, would you pray on our behalf and take these snakes away? And so Moses prays for the people on their behalf. And God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent, so a bronze snake, put it on a pole And if the snakes bit anybody, they would look at this bronze snake that was on a pole and they would live. That's Numbers 21, 6 to 9. It's weird. (laughs) It's a weird story. Um, But this story, I actually think really helpfully helps us to see the link between snakes and unbelief in the Bible. Um, So in Genesis 3, the serpent was the one who deceived Eve and Adam. Uh, They disobeyed God instead of worshipping him. They stopped trusting God, and they, the serpent sowed the sin of unbelief in their hearts. That was, that was really the first sin. They didn't believe. Adam and Eve no longer believed God. So the serpent sowed unbelief in their hearts. We see snakes in relation to unbelief against God in the Psalms. We see snakes in relation to unbelief against God in Isaiah. Jesus himself in Matthew 12, do you remember what he calls the Pharisees? You brood of vipers. So the link is interesting. Because unbelief is when we order the loves of our heart wrongly. 
when we don't put God in his proper place. It's when we lift up something wrong or something that we love more than God above him. It's when we look away from God and we, and we give our time and attention to something else and we look to something else to give us life instead of looking to Jesus, instead of seeing the faithfulness and goodness um, of God in our lives. And, and, that, and what we find happening in John 3, 14 and 15, is that Jesus takes this weird passage from Numbers 21 about snakes and a bronze serpent being lifted up to save Israel, and he applies it to himself. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what Jesus is saying is that the remedy for the bite of sin is simple, but also profound. So just like the bronze serpent is lifted up um, on a pole with Moses, and, and just so is Jesus lifted up on a cross. And just like when the people of Israel would look to that bronze serpent on a pole and live, when we look to Jesus, we live, we'll be saved from sin. Jesus is comparing himself in John 3 with what he will do when he is lifted up on a cross. But the first question we need to ask then is, why would Jesus compare himself to the symbol of a snake? Why would he do that? The symbol of sin, symbol of unbelief, the, the symbol of evil. How can Jesus say the same way the bronze serpent was lifted up is the same way I'll be lifted up? How can he do that? How could Jesus compare himself to a symbol of unbelief? And the answer to that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And also Galatians 3, uh, 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The answer to how Jesus can compare himself with the symbol of a serpent, the answer is because on the cross, Jesus doesn't just die for sin, he becomes it. He becomes sin. He not only dies in the place of our sin, he becomes our sin. And he takes the punishment that we deserve. And when we sin, we go back to our old performance. Well, I'm, you know, I just need to try harder. I need to sort this out myself. I did a stupid thing, but I can get back on track. I need to find a way. Me, 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 me. I'm going to fix this. The gospel isn't about you, is it? The gospel, the good news is that Jesus became your sin. He doesn't want us to achieve or perform better in our own strength. He simply wants us to look to him. He wants us to look to him to find our life and to find abundance. That's what it means to have a look of faith. So what are you looking at right now? Where's your focus? Um, what is making you take your gaze off the beauty of Jesus? Being a follower of Jesus, what, what happens after being born again is looking to him. 
That's, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's just to keep looking at Jesus. And it never gets more complicated than that. We make it more complicated because we make it about ourselves. But life and faith begins with looking at Jesus and it continues by looking at Jesus. As we look at Jesus, what we see is what we become more like. So when we look to Jesus, we become more like him. Whenever we drop our eyes and we start looking at ourselves, we become more like ourselves. We need to keep looking at Jesus. When we're born again, we're justified. Uh, what that means again is just as if I'd never sinned. When we look at Jesus, we see this. We see that we are sanctified. That means we are set apart. We are being made more holy every day, becoming more like Jesus every day. And when we look at Jesus, what we see is what we become more like, him. There are thousands of voices in our day-to-day demanding that you look at them, demanding that you give them attention. So who are you looking to? So when you wake up in the morning, when you, when you start thinking about your day, can I encourage you, start your day by looking at Jesus. Listen to him first. As you uh, walk through your day and you see God at work in your heart and in your day, look to Jesus again. When you face temptation, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus as the better option than what you're tempted with. When you sin, when you hurt God, look to Jesus. And he will receive you because he has become your sin already. He's already done that on the cross. When you feel just as distant from your faith, and you're just really struggling and you're having a hard time going through the Christian motions and you feel frustrated because there's no spark in your life of faith and apathy sets in your heart and you become just so apathetic. When you begin to take notice of how much you fall short and you don't live up the life that you should live to Jesus. You're tempted to look at yourself again. Don't. Look to Jesus. Don't put your faith in anything other than Jesus. In the midst of the thousands of voices demanding your attention, don't look anywhere else than Jesus. Here's the final point. Here's why you can look to Jesus. Because of his relentless love for you. So verses uh, 16 to 21, let me read these out loud. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We often stop at the most well-known verse in the Bible. John 3.16, God said, love the world. This is awesome. We never read the rest. And the rest is great. Have a look at verse 17. There's more to the good news. Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn it, but to save it. Isn't that good news? That is great news. But at the same time, as good as verses 16 and 17 are, verses 18 to 20 can hit pretty hard. Because we can't appreciate how good the good news is without knowing how bad the bad news is. 
Here we get both. We get how good and how bad the news is. God loves the world. He gave his only son to save it. Whoever believes has eternal life. God sent his son to save the world, not condemn it. But whoever doesn't believe this, whoever doesn't believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Verse 19, the light came into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. Verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, doesn't come to it for fear of being exposed. Here's the thing. We're all pretty nice people. I know most of you pretty well. I have no problem vouching for you that you're pretty nice people. But the problem is we're all pretty nice evil people. You know what I mean? We all have lived our lives needing a saviour because of our evil hearts. We all turn away. We, we all live as if we are the king of our own lives, not Jesus. And all that Jesus is doing in verses 18 to 20 is calling us out. And the choice is simple. Be judged by your own merits or be judged by Jesus' merits. And I know which one I want. There's a renowned Swiss-German theologian uh, whose name is Karl Barth, and he was speaking at a conference in Chicago back in 1962. He died in 1967. He, he's written many theological articles, books and essays. Uh, however, after giving a talk one day, during a Q&A, a student said to him, if you could summarise the essence of the Christian faith, how would you do it? I wonder what you think you might say. Well, after a brief pause, Karl Barth replied, Yes, I can summarise in a few words my understanding of the Christian faith. Let me put it this way. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It is as simple as it is serious, isn't it? We are all nice, evil people, but Jesus tells us how it is. We're either judged by our own merits or by Jesus' merits, but Jesus loves us so much. Has anyone ever loved you more than him? Has anyone ever loved you more than Jesus? No one. Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't leave you condemned, but he pursues you with his relentless love. Who has loved you like Jesus? And not just you as a person, the real you. The real you, you know, the, the secret you, the you with darkness in your heart, the you with baggage, the you with frustration and anger and doubt and fear, the real you. Jesus loves you so much that he died for that you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus stretches out his hand and says to you, I'm the one you're looking for. Don't look at yourself. Don't look anywhere else. Look at Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the work of the Spirit in being born again. Thank you for the look of faith and that when we look at you, we see more of you in us. And thank you for the relentless love of Jesus, that God, being rich in mercy, would make a way by grace we've been saved. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.